Welcome to The Tech Between Us, a podcast that takes a look at the past, present, and future of some of today's most influential technologies. Hi, I'm Raymond Yin, your host and director of technical content at Mauser Electronics, a leading global distributor of semiconductors and electronic components. Today, let's set the Wayback Machine to 1987. I'm a young design engineer working at my first job at Texas Instruments right out of school. And in addition to really figuring out what it is we do as engineers, one of the most fascinating things about this job is watching our little mail robot wind its way across the cubicle following a little painted line in the carpet. It would stop at our group admin's desk just long enough for her to unload our stack of printed magazines and letters before moving on to the next wing of the building. And, you know, while it would occasionally lose its track and, you know, stop and get stuck, I don't remember it ever actually hitting somebody or getting in another accident. So fast forward to today, wow, 35 years, and autonomous mobile robots are no longer limited by that painted line of the carpet and now have more processing and communications capability than the actual system I was hired to work on back in 1987. And now, rather than delivering mail, these robots are primarily used in warehousing and logistics, you know, where we've seen a huge uptick since the beginning of the pandemic nearly three years ago. In the warehouse, these AMR organize and stack pallets, they pick customer orders, and they do it all right alongside people in the warehouse. And they are becoming so pervasive and come in all shapes and sizes that one market report that I read said that autonomous mobile robots were the fastest growing market that they've ever researched. To dive into what sets an autonomous mobile robot apart from other robots and how they are being used in our daily lives, I have with me today Neve Donnelly, co-founder and chief robotics officer at Akara Robotics in Dublin, Ireland. Hi, Neve. Welcome to The Tech Between Us. Hi, Raymond. Thanks for having me on the show. Outstanding. Hey, real quick, can you um, introduce yourself and uh, Akara for us? Yeah. Um, so my name's Neve Donnelly. Um, and I guess my background was originally in mechanical engineering. So I got my bachelor's degree in that. Um, but towards the end of that, I kind of realized that software development was really my strong suit. So I got a job at US tech company called Etsy on their engineering team. Um, and I loved working there. I got lots of experience. Um, but while I was working there, I kind of started to see all these advancements being made in AI, machine learning and robotics. And I really knew that, you know, that was what I wanted to do. So I left my cushy job, uh, went back to do my master's degree. Um, so I got my master's in University College Dublin in AI and machine learning. Coming out of that, it was tough going back to college, but it was definitely worth it. And coming out of that, I kind of was working in data science, but I knew I wanted to work at a robotics startup. Um, so I had seen what a group of roboticists at Trinity College Dublin were doing. So they were building robots um, and they were spinning out as a company called Akara in 2019. Um, so I joined them as a co-founder and to lead the AI and machine learning development on their robots. So um, I guess they were, they were starting out building a robot called Stevie the Robot. Um, so Stevie was a humanoid robot that was built to be deployed in nursing homes. Um, and we had a lot of success with that. It actually ended up on the front cover of Time magazine um, in 2019. So yeah, it was really exciting. Um, and then I guess COVID hit. Um, so we kind of changed gears a bit because... 
at ACARA, we kind of saw what was happening in hospitals with cleaning and turnaround times um, for cleaning rooms were going up to like almost an hour with the manual cleaning that they were doing at the time. Um, and we couldn't understand why robotics wasn't being used more. So we built a robot called Violet. And Violet is a UV disinfection robot. So Violet is going to be is deployed in a hospital room and moves around the hospital room autonomously, shining UV light on surfaces and killing bacteria. And in some cases, we've actually managed to reduce cleaning times in hospital rooms from an hour to just 15 minutes. That's incredible. Um, All autonomously working side by side with the nurses and other hospital personnel moving from room to room, huh? Yeah, exactly. So the kind of idea behind Violet is that Violet can work safely alongside people. So we have AI on the robot to be able to detect humans in the room and to be able to avoid them. And while they're, you know, preparing the room for the next patient, Violet can clean other sections of the room. That's terrific. I'm sure that helped out a lot over the last couple of years, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Actually, cleaning in hospitals hasn't changed since the Spanish flu pandemic. So, oh gosh, was that 1918 you know, yeah. or something? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's so kind of scary. We, kind of, we felt, yeah, we felt robotics were, were definitely needed in there. <laughs> I would say so. Long overdue. <laughs> yeah. So to begin with, we've been talking a little bit about autonomous mobile robots. Now, is there a a specific industry definition or a set of features that designates a robot as autonomous and mobile? Or is it just simply kind of a generic term that's being used these days? Um, yeah, there is kind of like a, a broad industry definition. Um, so I guess an autonomous mobile robot or an AMR for short is any machine that can automatically move around its environment and based on its feeds coming from its sensors um, is able to move around without actually being controlled by a person or without explicit instructions to kind of follow a predefined path. So you've probably seen, you know, robots that follow a painted line on the ground. That's not actually an AMR. Um, An AMR actually has to take in sensor values and build up a representation of its environment and then use some algorithm to be able to build a path from point A to point B. So it's kind of a higher level of intelligence. So there really, like you said, there is no particular set path. It, it doesn't have to go right at a, you know, do a right turn at a specific place and a left turn. Um, it could just determine based on where it needs, where it is and where it needs to be, how to get there by itself. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of a higher level of autonomy. So Usually you'll have um, what are called planner algorithms. So you'll have a global planner um, and the global planner will have kind of a static map of the room that you've mapped out before. Um, And then you will give it its starting point and you'll tell it to go to another point and it will compute a path using some algorithm that you've chosen. And then you'll also have what's called a local planner. So the local planner um, kind of plans around dynamic um, obstacles that are in the local vicinity, so that are right beside the robot. So it can kind of move around them locally with the local planner and then still be on the global path to the endpoint. So I'm a gamer. And so it sounds like what you're describing is, you know, we always have a world map where you have, you know, the overall layout of, you know, obviously in games, the entire world, but, you know, for a robot, you know, wherever it needs to be working. And then you have a local map that has all the individual, you know, little pieces, people, desks, things like that, that it's got to take into consideration. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, it uses sensors to build up these maps. So, 
usually you'll have, um, and these can differ between any type of robots, but usually the standard is you have a LiDAR. So a LiDAR is a time of flight sensor. So it sends out a beam of light and it sees how long it takes to reflect back to the robot. um, And then that estimates the distance that object is away. Um, And usually the LiDAR is used for what's called localization. Um, So that localization is how the robot can tell exactly where it is. So it uses what it's reading from the LiDARs, compares it to the map that you've given it and kind of guesstimates where exactly it is. Um, and there's loads of different types. Like on Violet, we have a 2D LiDAR. So it just has an XY coordinate. Um, but you can kind of have a 3D LiDAR. So that gives it, you know, an XYZ coordinate. So you can see what's above and below the robot and kind of um, have you know, more a more detailed map. And then, you know, there's loads of other different types of sensors. So you can have 3D stereo depth cameras. Um, they kind of give you a more granular view of what's going on and would be more likely used for the local cost maps. So um, on Violet, we use Intel RealSense cameras. Um, so that tells Violet what exactly is in its immediate vicinity so it can move around it easily. So the robot has to take all these sensors, you know, actually kind of like an autonomous vehicle, you know, the self-driving cars. You know, you got LiDAR, you've got cameras, you've got, other, you know, probably, you know, temp sensors, things like that. And it's got to, from all that, it's got to create a map, um, a visualization of um, of where it is and where it needs to go. So it's probably, there's probably, you know, a, you know quite a bit of processing power on Violet. Yeah, so Violet definitely um, needs a lot of processing power. Um, and at Acara, we really quickly realised that, um, you know, our, our Intel NUC or computer that's on the robot mightn't be able to manage all these different algorithms. Um, so we looked at what's called AI at the edge. Um, so this kind of idea that you can... Um, run these heavy algorithms on small embedded hardware devices. So an example of that is the Intel Movidius Compute Stick, um, or you can use an NVIDIA Jetson or a Google Carl. Um, so you don't have to rely on forking out for a super powerful onboard computer or worry about draining the robot's battery. Um, they're also super cheap. Uh, a compute stick, I think, is about 100 euro. Um, and last year, a car were actually part of the Intel Movidius Accelerator program in Dublin. Um, and we were able to convert all of our algorithms into OpenVINO, which is the software that runs on the Movidius stick. Um, and we were able to go from running all of our algorithms at 15 frames per second to over 30. So it really made a huge difference just, just kind of moving to this. Yeah, so, so just changing platforms doubled your performance. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was really great. Brad connectors and cable assemblies from Molex are designed to simplify the design, installation, and maintenance processes in the most demanding industrial automation applications and provide one convenient solution for numerous interconnect and communication requirements. Learn more by visiting mauser.com slash Molex. From a uh, machine learning standpoint, you know we've talked about all the mapping algorithms, and it sounds like you're doing the the a lot of the image detection and recognition in dedicated hardware. What other sorts of algorithms? What other sorts of things are you asking Violet to do? You know, just kind of just in in its daily work. Yeah. So I guess one of the things that kind of makes Violet different from other UV disinfection robots is that Violet can work alongside people. Um, So Violet has 360 degree view um, cameras 
and is able to onboard um, run person detection algorithms to be able to detect whereabouts in the room a person is um, and can kind of move its light shield away from the person because UV light can be harmful to um, eyes and skin and is able to kind of update its navigation to move away from the person. Also, we kind of realised that, you know, we would love to have feedback on in terms of how clean a room is or how much UV dose um, a certain surface has and then maybe update the navigation based on that. So the next time Violet cleans, it knows where it spent most time the previous clean so it can kind of update its path. Yeah, so that's something where that's kind of new technology we're working on at the moment. Um, and then, you know, that will all feed into the navigation system. So it's not just kind of one navigation algorithm, it's multiple algorithms kind of. You have the global planner, the local planner, you have the person detection feeding into it. And um, we hope to kind of have this UV dose um, readings, you know, updating and improving the path over time. So we kind of have this idea of data-driven cleaning. Um, and I guess that's something that, you know, kind of really excites me, the fact that it's, you know, getting better over time and the robot's kind of learning and improving things. Yeah, that really is interesting because, you know, we expect robots to do basically, you know, do the same thing over and over again. Obviously, from traditional robotics, that is what they do. They, they take over a lot of the repetitive tasks that they're expected to do the same thing over and over, whereas you're asking Violet to actually learn based on the previous cleaning and do things differently each time, potentially. Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting how, like, different robots and different industries have different problems they want to solve. So, you know, we're looking at making cleaning better and improving cleaning, whereas you look at like Amazon and they have these giant warehouses um, and what their problem is more focused on is like one warehouse might have 8,000 robots, um, but they build their own warehouse. They can make the lanes as big as they want. They can, you know, so their issue isn't really navigating from point A to point B. It's actually having all these 8,000 robots not crashing into each other. It's just such a different problem because they can have control over actually the navigation algorithm. But, you know, there's so many of them moving and they kind of have, and it's not my area of expertise, but they would put a lot of focus on managing kind of swarm and like multi-agent algorithms. And I've, I've kind of been reading about them. They um, have this kind of cloud infrastructure and they, they kind of work like an air traffic control where um, they have the coordinates of the route of every robot and, you know, they can kind of have this mass, um, you know, delivery robots kind of moving all around at once and never crashing into each other. I'd love to actually see it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that, that, that really is interesting that, you know, we've got, you know, AMRs, you know, I mean, primarily in warehousing and logistics, but we're, you know, obviously we're seeing them in, in other industries, a lot of places, you know, healthcare, hospitality, things like that, where the definition of autonomy, um, and mobility is completely different from, from scenario to scenario. Yeah, exactly. And like different focuses are needed for the different applications. So if you have a service robot or even one that's more like Violet that the general public will be able to use, like the UI and the user experience is a lot more important. Um, like, uh, you know, I think it's being kind of pushed with autonomous cars and like now every car nearly has like a UI or 
or or some kind of interface that you interact with it. You know, like I don't think I could park anymore. I don't think I could park my car unless I had that reverse camera on the car's UI. Or, um, but the same goes for robotics. Like now, the general public are kind of starting to interact with the more. Um, like you'll see the service robots in restaurants bringing your food, and you know people are starting to use them more. So a lot of effort now and a lot of focus has gone into kind of UI design. And um, we, we do a lot of um, work with kind of human robot interaction or HRI. So, you know, what is the best way that someone can tell Violet to stop cleaning or, you know, start a clean or kind of get information from Violet? And it's kind of a really hard thing to <laughs> to kind of decide. So we first started off with a, a robot UI that as engineers we thought was brilliant and really easy to understand and brought it to the user and they were just like, what is this? I don't know what's going on. You know, why is there a Linux kernel here? <laughs> but yeah, it kind of... It kind of opened our eyes that, you know, we really need to make this easy to use or people won't use it and it won't get adopted. Like one of the biggest reasons a technology won't get adopted is because people find it too difficult to use. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's once I mean, that's even, you know, going beyond simple safety and simply making sure that the robot doesn't run into anybody. This is now how do you make the robot listen to somebody? Yeah, exactly. And like speech interfaces are becoming a big thing. There's kind of a controversy over whether that is the best way to go. You know, should we just stick with using a screen UI and actually having someone go over and move it? Or, you know, should we move to voice control? Um, you know, the natural language processing algorithms have like really advanced in, in the past five to 10 years that, you know, it's becoming easier to implement them. There's a lot of open source libraries that you can use. Um, but I guess, you know, one of our one of our robots, um, so we don't just have a UV disinfection robot, there's kind of some other things in the background that we're working on. And one of the robots makes a bit of noise and we were kind of testing a speech interface. And when the robot was on, it couldn't actually pick anything up because it was so noisy near the microphone that you couldn't hear it. So, yeah, it's just, it's kind of, you think something will work and then you try it in the real life and it and it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and that actually brings up another point is, you know, we, we were, I mean, last year during this podcast, we talked to a professor, um, Nata Jaran, at uh, one of our local universities here, and he mentioned that, you know, it, you can train and plan and and whatnot, all your algorithms and your machine learning. And then when you actually get it out there, you really have to really, you know, um, it undergoes a whole nother change um, in practical use. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And, you know, I was actually nearly taken aback when I first got into robotics that people didn't just build things in simulation and then let them go into the wild and they worked perfectly. <laughs> it definitely, you know, we've definitely had cases where everything works really well in the lab and then you bring it into the real world environment like a hospital and things don't go to plan. Um, one area in particular that I've noticed that that happens a lot is kind of around the sensor suite. So example, like if you have um, a LiDAR on your robot, they're really affected by kind of the lighting conditions and, you know, they can't detect surfaces like glass um, and it's kind of hard to replicate the environment it will be in. Um, 
or a 3D stereo camera can sometimes have these kind of salt and pepper noise and in certain lighting. Um, so kind of knowing the limitations of your sensors in certain environments and, you know, being able to compensate that for that. So say if the LiDAR isn't good in a certain situation, then have kind of a backup sensor of the, the 3D stereo camera or by using like sensor software filters. So, you know, being able to make sure your readings are as accurate as possible can really kind of give you a jump ahead around those um, potential issues. You just never know what's going to happen, but you can kind of preempt a little bit in, in terms of sensors. But um, we also kind of had that issue with kind of some of the training we did with our models. So we were originally using kind of some pre-trained models for detecting people, but um, we found out that kind of during COVID, obviously everyone in the hospital was wearing kind of heavy PPE and, you know, it looked a bit different. And, you know, we had to actually go back and retrain the model and add in kind of, but yeah, so, you know, you kind of forget that, okay, training set that this model's trained on was probably even before COVID and definitely didn't have people in it with with PPE. Like it would pick them up sometimes, but then you, you kind of need to give it a little bit of a little bit of help to be able to pick up on those things. Right. So the models are actually so accurate they can tell the difference or actually be confused by, you know, uh, you know, somebody not wearing a face shield or versus somebody wearing a face shield and, a, and you know, a heavy N95. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They mightn't know that they're a person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I figured, okay, you know, you get the rough outline. Okay. We got body and, you know, we, we person don't, don't go that direction, but to get down to the level where, you know, the robot needs to distinguish between somebody with a face mask, somebody without a face mask, so on. That's really interesting. There's a lot of um, a lot of pre-trained networks came out that that were able to detect, you know, if someone was wearing a face mask or not. So, like, I, I think a lot of the community that was probably something that was really needed to detect if someone's, you know, being safe and wearing PPE. But there was there's a lot of pre-trained networks out there that people have already created, um, that can actually do that. The Python family of CMOS image sensors from OnSemi combines flexibility in configuration and resolution with high speed and high sensitivity to address the needs of general purpose industrial image sensing applications such as machine vision, inspection, and motion monitoring. For more information, visit mauser.com slash OnSemi. So going back real quick to kind of uh, to the safety, you know, this this topic of safety, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, avoiding people. Um, you know, obviously, you, we don't want Violet to go crashing into somebody, nor do we want to give, nor do we want Violet to, do you want Violet to actually give some, actually give somebody a, a, a tan with the UVC light? Um but, you know, what, uh, you know, are, are there other types of, I mean, since you're working so closely with, you know, with, you know, people and and people who are like you just said who are maybe not used to being around technology are there other things that really that, that you guys have taken into consideration um to be able to create that that safe environment yeah so for a car to sell a robot in europe um, we need to have what's called ce marking um, so we need to make sure that violet meets the um, machinery directive um, and this requires us to perform a detailed risk assessment where we need to identify all the things that could go wrong and then we need to look at how we could mitigate against each of these things. Um, and a part of that obviously is the robot's safety system. Um, and although we can do a lot with AI, we, we kind of can't rely just on software as a safety system. Um, so there's 
um, on Violet, there's kind of three levels of safety. So the first one is Violet's SOPs. So the standard operating procedure on how to use Violet. So we have kind of safe and repeatable instructions um, on how the operators can actually um use the robot and only trained operators can use and control the robot and we run a lot of kind of staff training to make sure that they are using it up to code um, and then there's like additional safety procedures that um, the operators will have to use so UV radiation um, is regulated um, and there's a threshold um, of over an eight hour over an eight hour period of how much you can you know um, have shining on you or be near um, and so we our safety procedures do require that safety gear is worn to protect skin and eyes um, but we also have um, these kind of wearable sensors so you just wear the sensor and it measures the UV dose um, so you know if you are getting any UV dose it will kind of beep and you move back away um, and then only then kind of does the actual like software kick in after so we kind of have the computer vision for um, safety. So being able to detect if a person is in the room, you can have it on a certain setting so that it will just turn off the light if there's a person in the room. Um, or, you know, we have then as well to make sure the robot doesn't, you know, go near a person or have a, a crash. We have the navigation system. Um, you have the software that stops the robot before it hits an object but then we also have like a safety rated lidar which automatically is connected to the motor controller that will stop the robot as um if it's within a certain distance of an object and then you kind of have the last line of defense which is a bumper on the robot kind of like the rumba uses <laughs> which is you don't want to go that far but it's like we, an we all hope that. yeah exactly um, but but, yeah, but so we get the last like, panic um, button Exactly, yeah. And then there also is like a emer- big red button emergency stop on the robot. Oh, there is um, really fun, okay. <laughs> yeah, so that's part of like the CE marking and you have to have all these things. So it's really kind of like a hurdle effect. So there's so many different layers of safety that it's almost impossible that it will, you know, that an accident will break through all of them. Um, so it's not just one single thing. It's kind of a multitude of of um, safety procedures that that protect it. Just yeah, different shells of of of, of safety. Ba- I mean, some of them based on software, some of them based on hardware, such that uh, you know. So there's really no way to for Violet ever to really you know. I mean, have an accident. So you know, I mean, you guys have developed Violet. I know you guys are in some deployments and. When you go from, you know, a single, you know, a single violet, uh, you know, a single, you know, hospital to, you know, thousands of them, um, does that change the way you guys approach the robot or or the, you know, the, the service or, or system in general? So, yeah, that's something that we're um, just beginning to look into now. So we're still at kind of the early deployment stage, but now um, our early deployments, you know, we're starting to add robots to a hospital. So, the plan, I guess, is to have maybe around 10 to 20 hospital uh, robots per hospital. Um, and it wouldn't be like kind of in Amazon warehouses where it's like a hive mentality. They won't be um, working side by side. They'll be largely independent. But we really do need to manage and maintain each robot remotely so that, um, you know, if something goes wrong or, you know, we can kind of anticipate their usage or maybe one robot in one area is being used a lot more and we could maybe kind of 
add another robot in that area. Um, so what we're working on now is kind of building out a cloud infrastructure so that we can manage our fleet and kind of there's a few reasons for this. So we would really like one of the killers for robotics companies is having to call out all the time for maintenance call-outs. You know, when you think about it, if you have 10 robots in 10 different facilities and you have to send people out to them all the time, it would be disastrous. Yeah, so... What we hope we can do is kind of predict how the robots are being used, so how often they're being used, and try predict kind of maintenance call-outs in advance so we can kind of do an upgrade of all the robots that need to be done at one time. Um, and we really feel that kind of as we grow the number of robots we have into more locations, that this will be a lifesaver. So not only is the kind of infrastructure building for logging to be able to tell, you know, how many days the robot's been cleaning or its battery levels or logging any errors, but to actually kind of estimate its usage and be able to anticipate when, you know, an upgrade might be needed. Um, and yeah, so we kind of work, a car works as, you might have heard that term, robots as a service. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you about that. It, it really sounds like that's the model that you guys are going with. And as well as I, I know, you know, that is kind of, you know, I mean, the as a service thing is, is really, so it seems like, I mean, a lot of industries are heading that direction. Yeah, 100. It makes so much more sense for both the consumer and the people building the robots because the consumers get kind of free upgrades. If there's a new feature, like say you buy a robot and it doesn't have um, a speech interface and then the company that sold it to you start building a speech interface. Um, if you have, if you use robots as a service, you can just kind of add that onto your robot and then have it. Whereas if you just buy it straight out, you kind of have a depreciated hardware from the day you buy it. Um, so it, it, it's really beneficial. And there's kind of also that other aspect of being able to scale. So particularly for us, say, for example, a hospital might have a busy season like flu season or in the winter where they kind of need more robots at a time and need to be able to kind of have rooms cleaner quicker. Um, they can kind of scale up the number of the robots they have for the winter season and then kind of scale back down. Um, so it's really beneficial to hospitals and, you know, they have a greater level of support and, you know, we can kind of help on working and to improve the robots over time and, you know, continue working with hospitals. Um, so it's kind of a best of both worlds for each, the customer and the people building the robots. So robotics as a service, uh, you know, once again, yeah, you, you've been hearing about, you know, I mean, everything as a service and, and it sounds like it does make a lot of sense for, you know, especially for, for, you know, big expensive pieces of hardware. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't want to have something that doesn't work in, in a few years um, or that not even doesn't work, but just doesn't improve along with the technology that's improving. And, you know, and, and you had mentioned, you know, and it sounds like once again, you found another use for artificial intelligence and machine learning in, you know, not only guiding the robot and, you know, making sure it it's safe and gets to where it needs to go. But now we're into, you know, predictive maintenance algorithms for when you take the robot offline and do maintenance or whatever. So, you know, AI is just, you know, machine learning has just been layered into, you know, um, into every aspect of, of these autonomous mobile robots. Yeah, exactly. Like once, once you kind of have the infrastructure set up so that you can kind of get that data and, um, there's so many different ways you can use it, um, even to predicting like what rooms 
need to be cleaned more or, you know, other improvements that can be made. Um, it's all kind of, a, it is, I know it's such a cliche, but it is kind of about collecting the data um, to improve the product. <laughs> I hate that I use that phrase. <laughs> oh, but it is absolutely true. And I, and I think even for, I mean, for, well, for you, and I think, I bet your customers would be really interested in seeing some of that data in terms of, okay, you know, what, you know, what levels of, you know, of, of disinfecting are required for different areas of the hospital. Yeah. So as I kind of touched on before, it's, um, it's not just a UV disinfection robot we're building. We're trying to build and improve the way hospitals are run and their kind of efficiency of cleaning and facilities management in hospitals. So, um, you know, a cleaner would typically typically go into a room and fill out a sheet of paper um, to mark off what they've cleaned. Whereas, you know, it, it would be really simple to be able to digitise that and then also have the robot feed into that. And, you know, a lot of... Um, a lot of facilities spend so much time in hospitals just looking through kind of cleaning schedules and what's been done. It, it takes a lot of staff resources and people's time and hospitals are already overrun as it is. So kind of having like digitizing some of the processes and having robots that are kind of recording data to be able to feed back to facilities management company. Uh, facilities management managers um, is really useful. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, transposing a physical piece of paper, information on a physical piece of paper, um, you know, to, you know, transcribing and whatnot, as opposed to automatically creating your database of, you know, you know, times and, you know, places and levels and, you know, just yeah, that that's you know an incredible um, increase in efficiency. Yeah, it's just all that data kind of goes to waste if it's not recorded, and um, you know infection outbreaks in hospitals are still kind of um, even without COVID, were always such a big problem. Um, so just having records of cle- how clean the hospital floor is. Um, is is really helpful. So, you know, we've kind of been talking about kind of, you know, where we are today with um, these autonomous mobile robots and, um, you know, they're, you know, starting to show up everywhere. Obviously, you know, warehousing and logistics, healthcare, you know, all these different places. You know, as a roboticist, you know, where do you see this, is, see it all going? Um, uh, you know, in terms of both the, 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 the machine learning side as well as possibly, you know, the, the, the hardware and use case. Yeah, I guess um, it's funny because the hardware area isn't my area of expertise, but it is one that I find interesting um, for the future. So kind of how about we how we think about the embodiments of different robots and how they'll change. Um, so like right now we can kind of see it's mostly wheeled AMRs, um, but drones are be- drone delivery and drones and kind of um, we see like Boston Dynamics building non-wheeled robots. Um, and I think it's really interesting. Um, to be I able love to the see. dancing robots. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I know they're not. They're not. You don't. We don't know what they're doing yet, but. Um, I, I think it's really going to be interesting to see how they evolve um, and then also how kind of the designs of buildings that we build today are going to change to accommodate for AMRs. So like hospitals are actually great places for uh, mobile robots because when you think about it, you know, the really big hallways, the doors always open, the, they have to move hospital beds around all the time. 
Um, it's actually kind of some of the rooms can be cluttered, but largely compared to other places like we were originally were working in nursing homes um, and, you know, that was difficult to have a mobile robot move around. But I can kind of see how hospitals are 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 being built for moving kind of machinery around and um, moving things around. I, I think it's interesting to see how our kind of day-to-day lives and how designing buildings, will that change to kind of accommodate for for mobile robots? Um, or will, you know, there still be problems in trying to get, uh, you know, wheeled robots <laughs> upstairs? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, so, you know, the, the, they're actually, you know, the robots, you know, the, the use of the robots is actually potentially going to drive changes within what, within what we do rather than trying to adapt a robot to our environment. Yeah, exactly. I think it kind of takes a bit of both. Like we kind of have to build things to accommodate for mobile robots. Um, Like even things like, you know, having bad internet in um, like hospitals are almost in some places like Faraday cages, like trying to get an internet connection. And, you know, that's part of the reason we, <laughs> it's really going to be difficult. So like that was one of the reasons we kind of moved to AI at the edge where we could run all our algorithms on board so we didn't have to rely on that. But um, hopefully, you know, in the coming years, we'll kind of see that um, we need to kind of change how we build facilities to be able to accommodate for mobile robots. And there you have it. A brief look at how autonomous mobile robots are going from a collection of sensors and motors and processors to being an integral part of what we do every day. Neve, I want to thank you for being our guest today and, and sharing your insight and your experience um, with, these, uh, with these robots. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, it was really great speaking to you. Yep, absolutely. Great speaking to you as well. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Tech Between Us. Remember, this podcast is just one part of our original and ongoing content series, Empowering Innovation Together. You can find videos, articles, and more on autonomous mobile robots at mauser.com slash empowering dash innovation.